I'd like to introduce you to Louis Chudesoki and Robin Kelly. Louis Chudesoki is a writer and scholar whose work is focused in and around the African diaspora. His book, The Last Darkie, was a nonfiction finalist for the 2007 Hurston Wright Legacy Award. His recent work investigates the tensions and differences between and among immigrant blacks and African Americans. His essays have appeared in such publications as the Los Angeles Times and the San Francisco Chronicle. He is currently a professor of literature at the University of California, Santa Cruz. Um, Dr. Robin D.G. Kelly is a professor of history and American studies and ethnicity at the University of Southern California. He has published several books focusing upon African American history and culture as well as race relations. Um, the books include Freedom Dreams, The Black Radical Imagination, and the forthcoming book, Thelonious Monk, The Life and Times of an American Original. Please welcome Louis Chude Soki and Robin Kelly. I think, well, I think I'll begin just by saying a few words. I know that we're all in quite a celebratory mood and neither of us want to ruin anyone's buzz, <laughs> but we might in right. fact do just that. Yeah. Um, I'm thinking of this open conversation as being more an investigation and a taking seriously of certain legacies that have converged perhaps between the legacy of Martin Luther King and uh, the burgeoning legacy of Barack Obama. Um, a serious consideration rather than a blind celebration, taking it seriously indeed. Um, now from the moment it became clear that there was more to Barack Obama than seemingly limitless charm and uh, a charisma fed by his strong expectation of liberal goodwill and fair play, he was characterized and has been characterized by um, terms that I think you will agree were somewhat messianic, right? Definitely a bit of a messianic figure. I say this out of respect to someone I voted for. Um, I say messianic because to talk about Barack Obama in the context of messiah figures is to almost always require that you talk about Martin Luther King too, another messianic figure. So it makes sense that we're talking about both of these things here tonight, but these two figures as messianic figures remind me how much of how we think about race in America tends to be through messianic and heroic figures, right? And these messianic and heroic figures, they certainly preach transcendence or embody transcendence, but the difficulty is in trying to make us better, stronger, and more faithful, they often function as things for us to hide behind, right? Which force us to, or allow us to erase our failures to rise to their challenges. And that's the kind of thing I want us to think about today. For Obama, these messianic expectations seem to sort of come together around a series of uh, posts. And I say posts because I'm sure you'll be, you'll be familiar with this. Obama as post Post-racial, that's the most complicated one, right? Post-baby boomer. Post-soul, I have heard that one. Clearly post-civil rights. Post-identity politics. Post-white. Post-African-American, I take responsibility for that one. <laughs> Post-black, post-counterculture, post-generational, and certainly attractive to a finally post-Bush America, 
post-partisan, right? Well, my question is, if he is post, who is pre? Is Martin Luther King perhaps pre? Or is he the thing that we have gone beyond? Because there is this kind of self-congratulatory desire to move beyond abstractly, whatever it is that we seem to have supposedly moved beyond. So I'm interested in the relationship between Barack Obama and Martin Luther King, and so is Robin here, as maybe setting up at least a space for us to have a conversation and to reflect on the pre and the post, what one stands for and what one seems to be created as a version of. And I'm not quite sure what that means, but I hope we'll figure that out in our conversation today. So I think we ought to begin, Robin, by talking about the space between the pre and the post. Yeah, um, actually, I, I like to do that, and I like to do it specifically linking um, King and, and Obama because, you know, I think it is true that uh, Obama, King is often presented as the person, the figure, the movement that we've moved beyond. Post-civil rights is something that's been in the, in the air for, you know, the last 20, 25 years, uh, as if, you know, people being shot by the police, you know, in Oakland or wherever else, that these are not violations of the human rights, let alone the civil rights. Uh, but one of the things that, that disturbs me just the other day, uh, yesterday actually, we went to um, the uh, California African American Museum, and they had a big event for the King holiday, and you walk into the room, and there are all these photographs of King and Obama, you know, sort of side by side. And the point of, and then emblazoned above the photograph is uh, a dream realized. So the election of Obama represents the fulfillment of King's dream. And that disturbed me because the, King's dream wasn't to elect a black president per se. He would have loved to elect a peace president. He wouldn't have been happy about a president who um, says we're going to solve the problem in Afghanistan by escalating the war. Uh, he wouldn't be happy with a president who's silent on Gaza. And in fact, you know, if someone would ask me, what would King be doing during the inauguration? Well, he'd be trying to get back from Gaza. And he may actually not come to the inauguration because Obama is not king. Obama's, um, and, and again, you know, like, like Lewis, I voted for Obama, campaigned for him. I think that this is an historic moment, historic turn. Uh, but if we think of King as the pre and think that his message is no longer relevant, we're in it for a rude awakening because we're in the midst of two, possibly three wars right now. Uh, poverty is expanding. Inequality is expanding. Um, Obama's policies, some address these issues, but for the most part, what we're looking at is an escalation of war and expansion of war, um, not the elimination of war. And if anything, King would be the person who would be in Gaza and he'd be demanding, insisting that Hamas drop its weapons and use the power of love and nonviolence to challenge Israel. He would also be challenging Israel, and he would be standing there with the Palestinians. You know? And this is exactly the, the, the kind of vision that we need to be able to solve the problems of the future. You know? um, Obama, to me, if I think about who the pre is, 
Obama identifies with Abraham Lincoln. And I think that's appropriate. <laughs> and again, I'm not trying to, to rain on anyone's parade here, because of course, you know, tomorrow's a big day. But he is, I think he's absolutely right, that he is much closer to, to Lincoln, because Lincoln um, is the, uh, the pragmatic president who did everything he could to bring the nation together at any cost. This is a president who in 1861, when he was president-elect, uh, voted for the coronet um, amendment, which basically said that um, it was an amendment to the Constitution that would have made, uh, made it impossible for Congress to outlaw slavery. And it didn't pass. But he said, you know, it's reasonable. You know, it's a reasonable. And so the idea of, 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 of a position being reasonable, of, of trying to bring together different partisan elements, um, of trying to not be a troublemaker, is, is completely different and opposite from what King was. King says, I don't stand for consensus. I stand for the downtrodden. And that's where I stand. I don't care how unpopular my position is. You know? So if anything, we are not yet post-civil rights. We're not post-human rights. We're not post-war. Uh, we're at a moment where, if anything, we need, I think, King's vision more than ever. And we also need to challenge uh, the sort of commercial, long-standing commercial efforts to change what that vision was, to, to take sound bites, even to take King's I Have a Dream speech and take the last part of it without all the other parts that come before it, where he talks about inequality and poverty and the you know, conditions of, of black people. And so we have a lot of work to do. And, and I just hope, as, as my friend Barack Obama says, we don't go for the okey-doke, you know, um, because if there's ever time to, again, challenge the, f the future with something that's, that's not post-racial, but hopefully moving towards a post-racist society through anti-racism, through anti-sexism, through anti-homophobia, to transform America and the world into something that's much better than it is, rather than see it, the, the election of Obama as the transformation itself. I mean... He's not the change we've been waiting for. We are, but the work hasn't been done yet. <laughs> no, I, I actually, <laughs> I'll stop there. But um, one question I, I would love for you to address, you wrote a wonderful article, I thought, uh, about the issue of, of a kind of divided black community and, and divided around questions of immigration. You have second and third generation black immigrants who may have a slightly different take on some of these matters. You know. Well, before actually getting to that, um, I too would like to <laughs> talk about that. One of the things it seems that you're bringing up right now, which is so crucial, is to remind us that King was a radical. You know, you say, mm -hmm. you know, he challenged so much, he was a radical. And in making a distinction between Barack Obama and Martin Luther King, which I'm surprised that we must do, because <laughs> apparently we have to do this, right. <laughs> is to point out the fact that, you know, with all due respect to both, Obama's not a radical. So the question we have through this question of uh, through this issue of Barack Obama vis-a-vis -vis Martin Luther King is really to add another post to the mix are we post radical because one of the things we've had to ask ourselves certainly in the context of black cultural politics is be, does being black or politically being black is it necessarily oppositional or can it be as Obama and Michelle Obama I, I want to emphasize consistently argue is to be vested deeply in the fate of the United States, because we know that so much of 
African-American thinking, to speak super broadly, forgive me, super broadly, African-American cultural thinking, has really sort of gravitated to the sense of black is in opposition to the mainstream, black identity, black gender norms, etc., as somehow outside, outside, counter-oppositional. But one of the things that shocked people, particularly the black people, was the presence of an Obama that seemed not oppositional, not radical at all. So it's one thing to say, yes, we need a greater sense of the kind of Kingian radicalism, but I think Obama does present the question, how important is radicalism at this point? Does radicalism actually help us? Or is, is radicalism something necessary because perhaps our understanding of race has changed so much that a specifically black politics, as opposed to coalitional politics, group politics, other kinds of political configurations, that's where we need to be going, not specifically black, right? So that's a question I'd throw back to you before I go to the other one. Right, yeah, no, it's, um, it's true. Obama's not a radical, and yet, uh, you know, when I wrote a piece in US News World Report some time ago which suggested that one of the great things one of the great legacies he comes out of is a legacy of community organizing, which is not inherently radical. There's nothing inherently radical about community organizing. It can be or it can't be. It just depends on the circumstance and, and uh, the movement. But you know, my great hope for Obama is that he and Michelle Obama could sort of draw on the resources of community organizers from before and create a kind of civic, public, I shouldn't, shouldn't say create, but um, uh, motivate, mm. make possible the expansion of our civic public culture and, and, and really open up the possibility of debate and struggle. And out of that is a rebirth of radicalism, which I think is going to come underneath them. I mean, a, a rebirth because we've been dealing with a lot of repression, you know, over the last eight years and more. I don't know if that's going to happen. Um, one of the great... I mean, one of the reasons why I'm I'm still optimistic, despite my critique, uh, is that there's a sense that a sense of ownership. Uh, one of the things that, as you point out, uh, I think Obama did successfully, and that is is embody an investment in the nation, an investment in the Constitution, an investment in the traditions. Now, I don't agree with his conception of history. Because uh, I think African Americans and other oppressed peoples across the board, working class white people, Latinos, Asian Americans, Native peoples in particular, have had an investment in the nation, but it's been different. And I think you know they have provided traditions that we should draw on in in creating the, the new nation. But that investment, I think, creates certain possibilities and certain possibilities for a radical agenda. Because in the end, King had an investment in the nation. I mean, as radical as he was, part of what he said was, look, when he says that America has a, you know, a promissory note, a, 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 the check came back on insufficient funds, he's saying that there's something embedded in the Constitution uh, it, you know, that suggests that you know, there's something owed to those who invested their blood, sweat, and tears in the nation with unpaid wages and who was exploited during Jim Crow, that there's something owed uh, some kind of reparation. Uh, and so that's there. And even though Barack Obama himself wouldn't use terms like reparation, no, the, the idea of investment signals 
new possibilities? Well, I think Obama certainly represents, but also speaks for it, a vested interest in the United States, right? I don't know, however, that he feels or feels um, connected to a sense that he is owed anything. I think that that's different. I think there are those who would say that the the beauty, the what what, what was it? It was Biden who said he was clean. Remember that? <laughs> I actually loved that. I thought he was met, he was sort of metaphysically clean, right? Free of all the taint of the complicated history that we associate with black people, right? <laughs> but in that regard, Obama doesn't present any kind of ownership on a debt or any expectation on America based on anything other than what he can put into the United States. And I think that that's what's so attractive about Obama. But if you believe that there is still a debt, <laughs> yeah. that's a problem. Yeah, well, I, I, and, and, I, and definitely he doesn't believe there's a debt. And, and it's so funny how the internet works because if you, if you Google um, uh, Obama and reparations, you'll find articles that say he not only demands reparations, but he demands reparations for um, uh, Osama bin Laden. <laughs> it's very funny. Um, <laughs> But, but it's that is so true. He he doesn't he doesn't believe that, and and he can't afford to believe that given his his position, um, and it's unfortunate because the the debate around reparations has really never centered just around African Americans. It's centered around um, Native Americans, certainly the Civil Liberties Act for Japanese Americans, um, and I think that you can make the argument that every oppressed group of people in the United States um, ought to, you know, have, have, has a claim to reparations. And it's funny because... Isn't, isn't that pre? That's all pre. <laughs> that's all pre. I mean, we're, we're post-reparations. <laughs> post-reparations. Yeah, exactly. No, you, you, got, you got it right. You got it right. There, there's no... There's no. In fact, to go back to the uh, post-pre issue, I don't know if you've gotten this as well, but we are post... Post-racial has been defined as ending any conversation about race whatsoever. I have people coming to me and say, well, so when are you going to abandon African-American studies? No, seriously, yeah. Yeah, I mean, <laughs> saying that we don't really need it anymore. And in fact, to talk about it, just to be, basically have a conversation about it, means it's, it's passe, it's old, you're bringing up old wounds. But if there's still wounds, then something's not healing. It's funny. The night that Obama, when they called it for Obama, I was actually with, you know, Percival Everett, the African-American novelist. He was visiting, and we were having, well, he was doing a talk, and it was full of students, and they were all there for his work, prominent African-American novelist and thinker. And in the middle of his talk, someone called it for Obama. They said, Obama won. The moment that happened, Students came up to this prominent African-American novelist and said, okay, do you, you know, they basically asked versions of the same question, do you really matter anymore, <laughs> right? No, seriously, they didn't, I mean, they didn't, they didn't put it that well. <laughs> you know, no, but they actually walked up and said, you know, what's the point now of African-American novelist or African-American stuff? The moment that happened, it suggested to me that they were like, come on. Come on, they were waiting for a moment to erase it, mm -hmm. right? And that was fascinating to me. And that's exactly what you're talking about. But the point that it happened immediately, almost shamelessly, you know, is what fascinated me. Yeah, it's it's kind of scary. One of the um, one of the interesting things about the moment we're in 
is that you mentioned post-racial. In some ways, we're almost at a kind of post-poverty discourse. I mean, John Edwards, one of the things he did was he tried, when he ran his campaign, whether you like him or not, he tried to put the issue of poverty on the table. Yes. Um, and in some ways, he forced Obama to the left for a minute, and he had to sort of deal with the issue of poverty. Poverty is a significant issue, and not just poverty in terms of basic foodstuffs. I mean, just basic foodstuffs, especially with the economy where it is, but poverty in terms of the impoverishment of education. You know, you, 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 we're about to witness a massive infrastructure, uh, you know, uh, bill that is going to focus on roads and bridges. And I'm saying you need to rebuild schools. You need to put some of that money to, to hiring teachers, to expand education for inner city communities and urban communities and rural communities that are suffering from poverty. But I have to say, one of the great moments that really I think was a challenge to uh, a lot of the discourse around Obama that, that happened on Sunday was at that concert. I just have to mention this because mm. I think it's really relevant. Um, I'm not really into concerts like that, but uh, Pete's, concert? Pete, this is a concert with Pete, with Pete Seeger, and, um, you know, and got up there with everyone, and, and they sang this. This land, they sang this land is your land. It's a song that uh, was written by Woody Guthrie. Hardly anyone mentioned that Woody Guthrie was a radical. Wrote it in 1940 as a response to. Um, Berlin, God Bless America, Berlin's uh, tune. And one of the things that they did was to bring the issue of poverty and inequality and, more importantly, neoliberalism and privatization on the table was that Pete Seeger inserted the two verses that have been completely forgotten hmm. and erased from the song. Sorry, I just happened to have them here. Um, <laughs> because I just had to read this because... First of all, I was my, my partner Lisa Gay Hamilton and I were in the car, and I'm I'm like they're not going to sing those verses. And suddenly Pete Seeger is like saying the words out, and and the verses are, there was a big high wall there that tried to stop me. Sign was painted; it said private property, but on the back side it didn't say nothing. That side was made for you and me. You know, if you turn it around, you know the back side meaning. In some ways, this is about the privatization of the commons. This is about private property for who? And then it's followed by, in the shadow of the steeple, I saw my people. By the relief office, I seen my people. As they stood there hungry, I stood there asking, is this land made for you and me? And it goes on to talk about how we're going to you know, basically never turn back. It is a song about struggle. It is a critique of privatization. It is a critique of everything that Larry Summers and Geithner stand for is critique of the bailout of Wall Street, you know, at the expense of poor people and let alone middle class people, you know. And so they they slipped this in. I was like, I can't believe that. And and you know, I don't know if anyone paid attention to it or listened to it, but we're at this moment where part of Obama's agenda, unfortunately, like the Clintons, is about the expansion of neoliberalism and privatization. When, in fact, what we need to do is make the commons available. We need to end poverty not by you know, just giving more welfare relief, but really making resources available to the people. You know? And if you're going to have a green economy and you're not going to you know, collectivize certain aspects of that economy and make people, allow people to be investors in that economy and not run it in a way that, say, Enron was run, mm -hmm. which is my fear, um, you know, if, if we don't do that and go another route, 
Obama could be a great president, but as long as, as poverty is off the table and there's a kind of amorphous middle class that, that he's defending and not defending the downtrodden, not defending what um, neoliberalism has done to people, then you know, it's, it's going to be a long winter. You know? well, another thing I'd like to, you know, sort of riffing off of what you just said, it's probably really easy, though, to look at Obama and look at the response to Obama and then criticize whites for their desire to be post-racial or post-radical or what have you. But what's been most fascinating about Obama for me is the kind of seismic impact he's had on this thing called black and how that functions, how it has functioned, and how that's changed from Martin Luther King's era to now. Um, I'll say more about the black immigrant thing because you know the word black is increasingly less and less African American, you know, and that's something that Obama has come to signify for those of us who are black immigrants to the United States who have a different relationship to the United States than sort of native African Americans, right? But before getting to that, I'm really interested though in how a lot of African Americans at this moment, a lot of we blacks beyond African Americans really at this moment, are so prepared for a the post-racial, that we've decided to sort of retrench the old notion of race that Obama, I think, is critical of. Just as if, it's as if black people, now knowing that there's a general sense of the post-racial, are now prepared to prove to you it ain't post-nothing. Right? <laughs> right. right? And anticipate your right. sense of the post-racial by hardening into an old notion of the racial, which I think Obama healthily challenged. Right? And I think that's something that we have to keep in mind, though, that Obama did present and does allow a much broader understanding and critique of African-American understandings of race and politics and culture and history, which themselves were indeed problematic from the civil rights generation to the present. Perhaps not King per se, but the civil rights generation as it became privatized <laughs> and institutionalized and some would argue corrupt. Right. So the, the, the question of what black people do now or how to critique black people in a creative way, I think, is a very important you know, point to bring up, an important thing for us to think about. Obama allows us to ask questions of black people that black people almost re very rarely want to ask of themselves because so much of our understanding of race is projecting onto the white other. Right. And I think Obama's presence also transforms and threatens the kind of sacred binary in American politics, which is that there's only two races here, y'all, black and white, nobody else. And I think that Obama challenges that in such a profound way. And what I appreciate is beyond Martin Luther King, even though Martin Luther King was very much connected to and, open, and participating in opening up multiple, before there was even a multiculturalism, there was Martin Luther King and that kind mm -hmm. of opening up, but it, it actually congealed back onto just black people after King passed away. Right? We forgot that Martin Luther King didn't just mean blacks. Right? And so that's something that I think Obama's opening up again, and I don't want to see that close. Right? You know, I, I agree with that. And in fact, one of the... My, my, I'm worried less about Obama and more about the way Obama's framed on that very same question because, um, you know, t two things come to mind. One, when he gave his famous speech about race, the pundits turned it into a biracial issue. I mean, they, they transformed it into that. That's number one. But number two, and I think more urgently, is that there's a way in which Obama has been presented as the first black slash African-American slash multiracial uh, figure to actually have an agenda for the nation. 
And one of the things that disturbs me about that is that it really denies the black intellectual traditions in which you have all these activists and writers who have taken up national and international issues, irrespective of race. I mean, I teach a class that, you know, right now where they're reading T. Thomas Fortune. How many heard of T. Thomas Fortune? Okay, got one person. Now, that's a well, shame. Two. <laughs> two, okay. That, that's a shame. This is someone who wrote one of the most important books in 1884 about populism. It's called Black and White, Land and Labor in the Old South. And it was an agenda for America, an agenda for change in America. Ida B. Wells, Lucy Parsons, Paul Robeson, Dr. King, obviously, you know. I mean, the list goes on of writers who have taken up not black issues or black agenda issues, but national issues. And so to me, if, if, if we have any calling, it is to take advantage of this moment Absolutely. and say, you know what, Obama's right. You know, the black tradition, whatever it is, is multiple, it's massive, it's visionary, it's all-encompassing. And so we need to go back and, and pay attention to these thinkers and writers and activists and rewrite our history. Otherwise, we inherit this narrative that says black people are just narrow identity politics. Can't get or, over their skin. Can't get over their skin color. And they have nothing to say. But, but Obama has transcended race. So transcend race means both to ignore race, but also to be able to rise above special interest politics. Jesse Jackson, when he ran in 84 and 88, wasn't, he did, that wasn't a black agenda. That was a national agenda. And, and I have to say, if you look at, his, at Jackson's actual platform, it was the most progressive platform of any mainstream Democrat. You know, just go back and look at it in terms of, of peacetime spending, in terms of you know, uh, health care, and that sort of thing. But we, we need to go back and look at our traditions. Jesse, though, in all honesty, was in many ways too stained by his association with the civil rights movement. And I think it's, it's interesting that even though we connect Barack Obama to Martin Luther King, there are those who would argue that the reason he's successful is because he managed to sort of cut himself off right. from those associations. <laughs> it's true. And right. then after he won the, after he got the, I mean, the won, won Iowa, which is when suddenly all the true love fell his way, right? Um, he was attacked for not mentioning Martin Luther King's name in his speech. Do you remember that? I mean, now we forget all the things in the past. <laughs> we just love him blindly, right? No, but he was attacked for not mentioning Martin Luther King's That's name true. in his speech. And he was consistently attacked by the civil rights generation up until that point for not connecting himself enough to the civil rights generation. Of course, when they said the civil rights generation, they meant themselves, really. <laughs> That's what they meant, right? But, uh, you know, I, I think it's too easy to just assume a connection when, in fact, Obama worked hard to sever it. And what are the, the implications of having cut yourself off from the civil rights movement is something that I think uh, we need to think about, mm -hmm. you know, because it is our real guiding compass for understanding racial progress and regress in America. Or is it, in fact, something that we need to just bury? Right. Nobody wants to do that. But Obama kind of has. Right? I mean, what do you think? Well, what do you think? <laughs> I mean, because I mean, that's actually a really interesting question. I mean, he, he has. What, what do you think the, the um, what are the consequences of that, you think? Well, I think 
well, I think many things on this particular issue, but I would say that as someone whose work and his whose primary interest is around black immigrants who, you know, an important statistic for me is the fact that since 1990, more Africans have come to America than at the height of the slave trade. Sit with that for a while and think about the West Indian immigrants and the people who are black but are not necessarily black because they come from Spanish-speaking countries, right? If you really look at the questions as to what constitutes black in America, it's undergoing an amazing, amazing shift right now. And yes, they may partake of African-American politics and identity, but politically, they tend to be different, right? They don't vote necessarily in the same way. Right? Their affiliations aren't the same, and they don't have the same understanding of race and culture and politics because of the immigrant experience. Right? Um, they also don't necessarily give much of a damn about the civil rights movement, which is a problem because certainly it conditioned their acceptance and their participation in this country. But we can't expect that black immigrants who are coming and participating in the life of this nation, certainly in the educational system, etc., necessarily feel the need to orient themselves through Martin Luther King's legacy, right? So that's how I come at it, right? Well, you know, the sad thing is that I, I would say 90% of my students who are American-born feel the same way. They have no identification with the civil rights movement, with its legacy, with its contributions. And part of it has to do with simply not knowing the relationship between, you know, and I, and I think of the long civil rights movement. I think mm. for getting the 14th Amendment, which black people made possible, um, emancipation, abolition, democracy, that, um, that all these things... And the anti-colonial exactly. impact of it. I mean, yeah. Exactly. And, and so even the, anything that, that happened before, like, 1990, I, my students are just not interested, <laughs> you know? Um, That's pre. You know, I shouldn't say all that. I mean, <laughs> some of my students may be here, but, you know... So I think that's part of the part of the problem that we don't do a good job um, as a nation of really valuing and explaining the legacy and what impact it has on today. You know, but anyway, I know we're going to open it up. So. Yep. So just uh, to give you brief instructions, um, we'll now open it up to Q and A, and this is being recorded for a video podcast. So all questions must be asked into the microphone. Just raise your hand and wait for Sokolo staff to get to you. There's two of us going around. And if you would please state your name before your question. Hi, my name is Danielle. Um, I'm very curious about a distinction that I think needs to be made in terms of understanding the civil rights and actually understanding it in a historical context versus it being part of our daily consciousness, which is something very distinct. I'm the child of immigrants. I live it every day within the family dynamic, but my consciousness is not in that. I'm aware of it, but my daily, con and I have a huge appreciation for it, but my daily consciousness is not in that. My daily consciousness is in the progressive thought of where we are now. Can you just elaborate on one thing? Mm -hmm. The progressive thought of where we are. What is the progressive thought of where we are now, in your mind? Um, obviously, this is hugely historic, but I. Uh, there's a lot of people that are 
obviously, everyone is very celebratory about what's happening. The entire world is looking at DC tomorrow, not just us. This is huge. We, this has massive global implications, massive. People in Africa, in God, everyone everywhere is celebrating that we finally have a leader. Not a leader, I'm not talking about a politician, I'm talking about a true leader. He happens to be black with a Hebrew Muslim name. In my opinion, I really deeply believe he is the personification of unification. And that's where this is going. And I think his thought and his consciousness is in that. And I think it's important to have an appreciation and an understanding of the historical context of it. But for, and I, I understand the distinction with MLK is true. I completely agree with that. Um, but I think that, um, you know, you can't move forward if you're looking behind. Well, actually, I, I strongly disagree with that. Because you can't go forward without having a historical understanding where you've been. And you can always no. go back. <laughs> yeah, and you can go back. I mean, you know, because, and let me, let me explain, let, let me give you like a real, and I'll, I'll be brief because there's so many ways that I could respond to your question, but very, very briefly, um, few people actually stopped to think that before 1965, the vast majority of black people in the South could not vote. Okay, so you're talking about a generation. When Shirley Chisholm ran for president, um, there were people who could vote for the first time. Okay? Um, the Great Migration made possible, you know, during World War II, um, a greater voting block as black people moved out into urban areas in the North. Um, in the 1980s, under Reagan, you had a whole slew of voting rights uh, violations, which led to investigations. Uh, some of those voting uh, rights violations, um, and I can't get into it, but the short version is that um, by the late 80s and into the 1990s, um, the FBI allegedly inve is investigating some of these things, but what happens is the Klan is resurrected in the 80s. You have a whole range of church burnings that take place. This is part of the civil rights movement. This is not part of something. In other words, we, we have inherited this idea that civil rights ended in 1965 or 1968, that it's closed. If you go back and read the New York Times, they'll tell you it's over, you know, back in those days. And we've, we've again, we've gone for the, for the phoniness. Um, and it was precisely those movements that made possible Barack Obama, made possible there would be no Barack Obama had it not been for that. There would be no Barack Obama had it not been for Jesse Jackson because one of the reasons why the Democrats were able to register so many voters was because of Jackson campaign. I mean, in other words, there's a direct relationship between everything that happened, even the last 10, 15, 20 years. And so when we forget that, we forget how to organize. We forget how to mobilize. We stop and we end up allowing someone that we claim is a leader without realizing that Leaders go where the wind blows, and we need to be the wind to blow. You know, we need to be the wind. And if we're going to be the wind, whether we're immigrant, whether we're native-born, whether Native American, whatever color, creed, age, we have to be able to understand our history to move forward. 
It's fundamental, and now's the time to do the work. And that's sort of one small response. But and I, <clears throat> and I would add perhaps a little bit more abstractly that, you know, I said a little while ago as a little quip, we can always go back. I mean, this happens all the time. Mm -hmm. You know, there's also the possibility of immense, immense backlash to this. You know, and I'm very worried about the fact that so many people pin, so many of us pin our hopes on a candidate who has worked hard, really, to create a grassroots movement, a grassroots movement that will fail if it considers this moment a complete victory. It will fail. And with all due respect, Obama knows this. He makes it clear. He does cultivate his little cult of personality, too. Right. But at the same time, he's very real about the fact that if we sort of drop the ball, it's going to be a really long time before we get back even halfway to this place. Right. So that's definitely important. And also keep in mind that in terms of historical consciousness versus how you live every day, every day is formed by historical consciousness. Indeed, every single thing about our experience, just look around this room, it's anti-colonial struggle and the civil rights movement mm -hmm. that has made this room possible and these people in it. So it's important to keep in mind that the past and the present are definitely involved in each other at all, at all points. Yeah. Gentleman, question to your left. Uh, J.C. Smythe, uh, going back to the radical presidency, I'm not sure if there's ever been a radical president. I mean, there's a person and then there's a structure. The person can be as radical as radical, but once they assume that structure, the embedded within that structure, they're, they're, some, they're moderated. I'm just wondering what your thoughts of that are, and if that, if that office can ever be radicalized, or have there been moments in history that it was radical? I'll just say quickly, though, I'm not sure personally I want a radical president. Right? I mean, just you know, without explaining that too much, I'm just going to say that for me, the category of radical is not automatically good. Absolutely. <laughs> and yes. I want to emphasize that, you know. Yeah. Right, right. Okay, okay. Yeah, the, the, you're right. There's never been a left radical president, no question about it. But we've had a couple of radical presidents. George Bush has been a <laughs> radical <good>. president. Um, <laughs> Ronald Reagan has been a radical president. I mean, the, the radical change that has taken place under his two terms, it's incredible. Um, but you're right. There has never, and, and I don't expect it. I mean, you know, I have little kids. You know, I've always talked to little kids, and they're like, well, well, you think Martin Luther King would be president? I said he would never want to be president. You know, because he couldn't, he, to be a president, and this is one of Obama's um, dilemmas, but he's very good at it. To be president means that you need to get the widest swath of people behind you. Consensus. Consensus. You've got to do that. You cannot succeed. The Constitution, in some ways, demands it, mm -hmm. you know, and that's okay. But King didn't, wasn't a consensus person. He was a radical who said, I will stand up to power no matter what the consequences, and I will stand for the downtrodden, and, and we need people like that. And so one of the, and again, when I talk about, you know, what we need to do to push Obama, I think Obama is, is a great human being, no question about it. Um, but we also have a Supreme Court, <laughs> we have a Congress, we have a Senate, we have local governments, and, um, you know, people had all this hope for Viragosa, who I think was, a, it's been a disaster, you know? <laughs> and, and, you know, nobody, I mean, you know, people could disagree, but, but he, we, we're in a place where, 
we, we will never have like truly radical elected officials in a structure that doesn't allow it. But what we can have is a radical vision of a future and push for that. And yeah. we have a president who actually taught the autobiography of Malcolm X. That in itself is pretty impressive. <laughs> he taught it in his classes, so that, that might be as radical as our White House will ever go. <laughs> Gentlemen, question to your right. My name is Stephanie, and my question is, um, I overheard or kept hearing during the campaign this question, and this is really for um, Professor Chudasoki. keep hearing the question is, is Obama black enough? <laughs> And my question to you is a prediction. I'd like to hear your thoughts on your prediction on how history will judge that question in reference specifically to Professor Kelly's comments that there seems to be some concern that blackness requires this leftist political agenda. And, my, and if you would expound a bit on that article, that wonderful article in the LA Times. Thank you. Um, well, I don't know that Robin said that blackness requires it, but it certainly has had. This sort I, of I, I didn't agenda. say that. Right. So I just want to cl no, but it, but you commented in the in response to my statement right. that it usually does, right? So I just want to clarify that. Um, how will history judge the blackness question? Well, how has history always judged it? I mean, it seems to change every few generations anyway. I mean, let's be honest. You know, colored, Negro, African American, black, etc. Um, I think history will see this as a moment when things began to change. I actually do believe that although this is not on the table right now, I really believe that beyond um, the media and beyond even black self-awareness, that category is being challenged all the time and it's about to go undergo some more transformations. So I don't know what history will say right now today, but in four years, hopefully eight if he gets two terms, um, <laughs> I think that there will be a new term or a new understanding about that term that will be coming up in the next few years because one of the things that Obama, back to the, to the article, Obama has emboldened is a black immigrant political presence, right? Not just black immigrant, but immigrant political presence because so many immigrants, up to two, three generations, often don't feel at home or vested in the, invested in this country. Right, I'm an immigrant, I've been here three generations, but I'm not really that concerned with this country, it's your country. That's kind of a general Im immigrant sensibility. That's changing, and I think Obama has done a lot for waking up immigrants to their own possibilities politically in the United States, but black immigrants in particular, realizing their numbers, their influence, their difference from African Americans in terms of traditional vo voting patterns and political sensibilities, right? And their awareness of themselves as another kind of blackness that must be dealt with, must be acknowledged as distinct, but also a part of this broader new browning of America, right? So I don't know what's going to happen at this point, but I do know that more of it is gonna happen. There's gonna be a greater presence and a greater participation of not just African Americans, but Indians, South Asians, in America, I mean, we see this already happening, right? So there's gonna be a lot more. That. And I think that the best thing about this in terms of prediction, it would be wonderful if blacks no longer were not only seen as, as a homogenous category, that blacks no longer were taken advantage of by the Democratic Party. It would be wonderful regardless of where you come from politically, it is a mistake for one ethnic group to be so affiliated with only one political party. I think that black immigrants signal a real transformation because most of them or many of them don't feel that they have to be Democrat. And they don't also think that to be black means to be radical or oppositional, right? So things are changing and I hope that addresses it in a broad way. 
We have a question to your left. Uh, my name is Todd Hayes. I think you both missed it. Post-civil rights ended with Ward Connolly in Proposition 209. Affirmative action, preferential treatment is what kept us connected that no longer exists. Did you miss it? You can answer it later on. But more importantly, the thing you also missed was the fact that um, there are France, Germany, England, Japan, and many other nations have one thing we don't have, a ministry of culture, which defines what a Frenchman might be and those other people. We don't know what an American is. We, uh, indication of that, you call yourselves Americans, call yourself United Stations, because that indicates that there's no North, no Central, no South, just this country, which is a hegemony. We understand that. But King had one thing in mind, one thing only. He didn't have a Ministry of Defense, so that's not the War Department, whatever. He didn't have commerce. He didn't have education. All he has was judge a man by the content of his character, not his color of his skin. And so that's the only thing you predicated Obama on, nothing other than that. And because you brought those other things in and out, and Obama doesn't reflect those things. Yes, that's Hello, sir. Do you have a question for our speakers tonight? Okay, what's your question? I've already given one question. Okay, okay. 209 okay. and affirmative action. Uh, maybe I lose my thought almost. But the other, I'm concluding on this because she's so impatient. Uh, I just need you to ask a question, sir. Thank you. <laughs> and I think that's your problem also, your impatience. Obama said, don't make any sudden moves around white people. In other words, he knows how to perform and act around white people. And you want him to act any differently and not be electable? Oh, is it? I, I got we, we, we can wade through that one. Yeah, yeah. So you yeah. can. Now, I was confused about the question. Are you, are you saying that? The civil rights movement. Right. So you're, but, but you're saying that. I mean, you're saying what, what, what would be either one of our positions at 209? 209 was the end of civil rights in America. Well, I mean, that's, well, I, that, they use, I mean, Ward Connolly used the, the word civil rights and turned it upside down to push 209, to get voters to support it. If, and just because of the passage of that bill, it, in my view, it doesn't mark the end of civil rights you know, as, as, a, as, as a right. In other words, the idea that we, don't, we no longer need civil rights. In fact, the, 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 the so-called Proposition 209 um, had very little to do with civil rights at all. It was basically um, a way of recalibrating, you know, admissions policies so that race doesn't matter, you know. Um, and... Even the Supreme Court said race ought to matter, you know, um, in the University of Michigan case. So, I mean, and, and, and the fact is, Ward Colony is not done yet. He's going around the country trying to get different versions of Prop 209 passed. And so I think that's a real struggle. One of the great things about Obama is that, at least in Audacity of Hope, he's very clear in terms of the defense of affirmative action, that it is something that's important. Um, and he may not acknowledge this, but we've had... Uh, you know, a couple of centuries of affirmative action, and, and that affirmative action hasn't been for people of color. It has been in the way, it, it has been in, in the way of that, um, whether you're talking about the use of legacies to get, you know, white kids into college whose test scores are not as high as blacks and Latinos, whether you're talking about 
the way that property values for homes that are in white neighborhoods are ranked higher by FHA versus those who are in mixed-race neighborhoods. I mean, there's a whole history of affirmative action. And then one, one obvious treatment. one is if you think about this history of education in the South, Dr. King talks about this, about how you have black taxpayers paying money into you know, the state of Virginia, for example, who are subsidizing white education because in terms of the expenditures for black school children, it's about one-tenth, you know? So you have a situation where we've had lots of affirmative action, long history of it. You know, it just goes the other way. <laughs> to the question as to whether or not America has a culture, that's, that's what I'm going to back off from because as a, speaking still from sort of an immigrant perspective, Americans tend to be blind to the fact that they do have a fairly ornate and powerful culture um, in terms of political economy, <laughs> right. you know, politics, you know, military power, et cetera, and media, but also in terms of really cool, nice things too, like things that, produced large, that were produced largely by African-Americans. So to say that America doesn't have a culture to a black person is a bit of an insult. Hi, my name is Ama Atiadu. Um, first of all, I just want to thank you guys for your discussion. It, I really enjoyed it, and it just made me think a lot, a lot about my own views of politics and um, thinking about the way I voted this year. Um, and I'm speaking as an immigrant, born in Ghana, but grew up in the United States. So my political views are a lot different from my parents. And <clears throat> excuse me, I'm getting over cold. My question is, we think about the historical, um, just the, this moment and what it's going, to, how it's going to be recorded later on in, um, in the history books. Do you think at, I guess what I'm trying to say is right now, what's continually being said is, you know, Obama is the first black president. Do you think later on when it's written in the history books that him being the first black president is what's really noted? in terms of that being the historical moment, or will it pass that and be him really being focused on him being from it, you know, his parents being an immigrant? Or like, what do you think in history this moment will be written or recorded as? Well, because he's the first, he will always be called the first black president, right? Whether he's the first black president or the first African-American president or the first whatever, first just forces him to conform to that marker for the rest of history, right? We hope that he will be remembered also as a good president, mm -hmm. one that helped rebuild America after an enormously bad president, right? Hmm. One who helped rebuild America, you know, we could blame Bush for a lot of things, but, you know, we could probably trace this all back to Reagan, mm -hmm. you know? Uh, I think oh, we absolutely. really can. So, yeah. Absolutely. So hopefully we'll remember those things, and hopefully the immigrant and all these different things will come come to play. Um, I love that moment a few months ago when he described himself as a mutt, right? I never thought I'd hear an American president call himself a mutt. I just, although technically all of them could have called themselves that, you know, for you know really, but for him to identify that, you know, and for that to be affiliated with America, considering the demographic shifts at work. That's what I hope we remember in the future, that this is the first president that made it possible and necessary to define America beyond white or black or African-American, but something much more other than that. And I think that's ultimately what we're working for, that it'll be a president remembered for signaling a broad transformation in how America sees itself.
Absolutely. Let me add just two things to that. I completely agree with everything. And I would add, you ever, ever heard of a, a writer named J.A. Rogers? Oh, yeah. Joel Augustus Rogers, one of the great... Jamaican. Um, Jamaican. Jamaican. <laughs> well, if you read J.A. Rogers, he'll say Harding was the first black president. Yes, he did. In <laughs> fact, he did. Yeah, I remember Got that. to read, you know what I'm saying? So, <laughs> and, and because one of the, because part of, part of what Rogers does, which is so brilliant, he raises questions about what is race. Because if you go back, if you really go back in time to like people's sort of genetic origins, you can find, as they used to say about the woodpile, you could basically, I mean, no one's pure. And all. so part, part of his was sort of a tongue-in-cheek, <laughs> but he says Harding was the first black president. Why do I say that? Because, you know, to go back to what you said, you said when the history books are written. Well, there's so many history books mm. and so many different perspectives, and you can write one. And so I think that Obama will be remembered as, a, as Kenyan, as biracial, as black. And, and, and like, um, like Lewis said, I hope he's remembered not so much as those things those things are sort of interesting but as a great president the first peace president the president that pulled us out of these wars the president that really transformed the economy and put back pe put people back to work the president that defended labor that supported the you know employee free choice act the the defen the, the president that said you know what the people who are at the bottom shall be at the top you know, the bottom rail shall rise to the top. That's the, the president who would go to Africa, you know, and not just be beloved, but to really build a policy, foreign and, foreign exactly. and social policy around Africa that actually could be beneficial and not exploitative. Mm. I mean, that's the president that I'm looking for. A president that revises immigration policy in a Absolutely. very progressive way. You know, you know. But my, my great fear, though, is the question is, will there be books? In the future, so <laughs> maybe that's the. <laughs> will there be history books? Is the question, right? <laughs> Gentlemen, question to your left. Yes, greetings. Good evening. Thank you both for being here and open up the discussion. I have a comment. My name is Satra Amnut. Uh, by the way, thank you. Um, and I have a comment. I appreciate you opening up with the post versus pre and what that is. But I was very excited about. Um, the comments that you made in reference to the African immigrant versus the native um, African of slave descendants or the descendants of slaves. So I appreciate that because I'm going to explore that in my own mind. But I have a question, and that question is, um, what do you think about this comment that um, you have to deal with in America? You have to deal with the um, social wounds of the Native African American um, descendants and their um, political, social agendas in America before any real progress or evolving can be realized in the lives of the people that have actually had that and lived that experience through the generations. Can you comment? Um, my initial response is that it's, it sounds like you're saying what was what black women said, what was said to black women and black feminists in the 70s, that we need to deal with race before we deal with gender, which no one really bought. 
well, many people did buy, but it was a problem overall. And not to reduce what you're saying to that, it's just to say to people that you must deal with this other thing first before you can do that is never going to politically work, right? I would say, though, that it's important for black immigrants, to, to, speaking directly to what you're saying, to be aware that their presence in America is conditioned by the struggles of the native blacks, conditioned and made possible. Hence the importance of Martin Luther King as an anti-colonial figure and all of that. And that's very important. But we shouldn't be so naive as to assume that they will. right? So there's work to be done there. It should never be taken for granted. And I think a lot of Native African Americans do take for granted that the category of black is enough. And it clearly isn't. And because so many people have taken it for granted over the last few generations, it's breaking down. It's breaking down, and we need to address it before it creates some real, real problems, right? So that's how I would respond, yeah. And I guess I would add one thing to that, and that is that it's important for African Americans, no matter how many generations they were here, to come to terms with the black immigrant experience because, you know, you talk, why do people immigrate? You know, a lot of it has to do with movements of capital. A lot of it has to do with policies. That, in other words, people are not coming from ideal situations. You know, so this idea that somehow, you know, black Americans are oppressed and, you know, uh, just, just walk on 116th Street in New York and where basically you got so many Senegalese and Malians there <laughs> who um, are coming out of very difficult situations and we need to know that history. In other words, if we're going to rewrite American history, we need to know the history of those immigrants. How come we could teach a course on the history of immigration in the United States and begin with Ellis Island when you've got, you know, Mexico, you've got the Pacific, oh, you've yeah. got, and, and, and on top of that, even in terms of, in terms of well, of course, post-65 immigration, what does it mean to be Haitian in the 1980s and to be incarcerated? You know, I mean, these are histories that we need to know, and they shouldn't, and, and I'm not talking about black people, all Americans need to know this history, but we don't do a very good job of it, you know? Anyway. And, I, and I would just add that it's one of the challenges for all, all groups, really, but African-Americans, Native, Native blacks, immigrant blacks, but all kinds of people, ultimately, is to actually sort of let... I think this is something Obama did do, at least in terms of political strategy, by consciously decentralizing race... Right, which a lot of people had a problem with. He decentralized race. Race was not, it was certainly a factor, but it was not the primary concern. Right? And that was a strategy that he thought, and you should think about whether or not we, will, we agree with this, he thought would then force people to look for common connections that are not based on their own identities. And that's something I think you're suggesting to make to, to look at other people's histories is to actually remove get out of yourself and your own sort of invested interest in your own experience, your own suffering, your own pain, your own trauma. We should never be playing these who suffered more games, because nobody wins those games at all, right? Right. But to sort of look beyond the identity of the self for something else. And I think Obama politically that was his strategy. And I think it's actually something we should all sort of take with us as we think about how to make sense of all of these differences. You know? My name is Garrett Mettler, and uh, our current president was much maligned after this nation was in crisis for inviting people to go out and go shopping. Hmm. Um, I was heartened to hear that today our soon-to-be president was covered by participating, being involved, painting in a homeless shelter for teens in Washington, D.C., 
I hope that's not symbolic. I recognize as a, a figurehead, you know, you, you, th those things often are, but I want our president to evoke me to be as invested as a citizen as he has really seemingly been transparent in his own investment in his country. So my question is, what do you think is perhaps most significant about Dr. King's legacy in terms of his skill and ability to get people involved? I'm a community leader and there's a distinct difference between the people in my community who are spectators and the people who are participants. And then if you would compare perhaps Dr. King's ability or his legacy in the sense of mobilizing people to involvement and action with what our very soon to be president might be able to do um, in order to fulfill what I believe he said, and this is very rough paraphrase, I'm not the change mm -hmm. for this country, mm -hmm. you're the change, but how do you think he might be able to inspire us to be as invested in, and how might that be connected with Dr. King? Um, the question really is, can a community organizer, as he was, become president and continue functioning as president as a community organizer at the same time? Just a larger sense of community. Um, I don't really... The question as to how, I worry about the, 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 the desire for, Oba, for Barack Obama to be more than he can be. I worry about us looking to him too much. And I think that one of the great things, one of the great problems that we're going to face probably within two, three months of his arrival in the White House is a sense of, I don't know if national, not depression, but there's going to be a sort of a, a sense of being let down that the heavens didn't open up. Mm -hmm. right? We're going to be let down. Because I don't think that we need to look to Obama for this. I mean, certainly it would be nice for him to continue. Right? What's more important for me is not so much what we hope he will do. I think he's done it. I think he's actually done it. In terms of the online recruitments and the online fundraising and the community activism that he has in fact inspired, particularly amongst people between you know, 18 and 25. The question is not can he do it, can he continue it, right? And so I think the problem then becomes not so much what can Obama do to continue it, the problem is us now. Will we now sit back and go, we got him elected, we did everything online, we, did, we went and did all that, we went and signed people up in the South, in record numbers, we can sit back now and let him do it. I really think the onus is on us now. And so I'm finding it hard to ask him to do more. Damn it, he became the president. I can't imagine. I can't ask him to do anything else. <laughs> you know? I mean, that's just a joke there, but right. Right. <laughs> it's really, it's on us. Well, well, can I take the other part of your question? Because you asked a very good question. And, and you talked about King's legacy and how was he able to mobilize. And I think, you know, as a historian, it, King is a very interesting figure. He was one of the most, I think he was, to me, he, he's my favorite male American, <laughs> period. Um, I, that's how I, how I, how I, I just hold him in high esteem. <laughs> he wasn't a very good organizer. And this is important to realize that he inspired people to do something. But one of the things that SCLC was criticized for was going into communities sort of like in a flash yeah. and starting stuff and then leaving. The organization to look at to see how what's effective organizing, one that I think is much more much closer to what Obama tried to do, is SNCC, the Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee. They would go into a community and they would stay there. They, because the the great 
the great visionary behind SNCC, who's one of my, was Ella Baker. Ella Baker is one of the, like my favorite female American <laughs> in history. <laughs> Ella Baker, and there's a great book by, about Ella Baker by Barbara Ransby, you know. She had this brilliance of, she said, look, you know, uh, strong people don't need strong leaders. Mm. You don't need strong leaders. What you need is people to have an investment at the grassroots that they can actually make a difference. And so in Mississippi, you have teenagers and older people and elders coming together and building a movement that was stable against all odds. And that's something that is, King, could, King could move 100,000 people on the mall, but in Mississippi, they can move 25, 30, 50, 100 people to actually get voter uh, rights, you know, voter, register voters. So, I mean, it's, to me, we, we need to study those models and what we're going to come away with is to realize that there's, there's multiple kinds of organizing. There's service to help, you know, really rebuild. And then there's political mobilization, which in both are necessary because there's going to come a time when if we don't like the way Congress or the Senate or the president is moving, it requires political mobilization. And that's very hard work to make the demands that we think are righteous and just. Including Obama's, I mean, um, demands on Obama himself. Mm -hmm. That's going to be necessary. Absolutely. Hi, um, my name is Sophia, and I was wondering if there was any way in which you thought that Obama has been given the keys to a burning house. And um, mm. secondly, um, one of the problems, one of the things that really concerns me is um, the fact that we as a nation don't seem to be paying attention or being very thoughtful. And I was wondering if there were practical ideas that you had um, in terms of increasing our thoughtfulness as a culture. Um, it seems to me that maybe 30 years ago, people were a little more thoughtful in some ways that they aren't today and, and the media is contributing to that. I was wondering what your suggestions might be. Good. <laughs> Me? Practical? No. <laughs> um, about the burning house. Uh, it's easy to say yes to that, but in saying yes to that, I find myself kind of falling into the fashionable cynicism that, you know, that defines so much radical sensibility that I think that Obama successfully worked against, right? It's easy to say, yes, it's a burning house. But, you know, truth be told, it's still the United States of America, right? It still has political power, it still has economic power, and it still has serious military power. I think it's because of my orientation outside of the United States, I don't share in this sort of American celebration of its own demise. Because I, <laughs> you know, I don't, I don't, it's something that a lot of people like to do, but I think that's in many ways a way of sort of denying or obscuring the fact that America ain't going nowhere, you know? What, what's, what we need to fear is how it reacts to this crisis, right? Because it can easily retrench in so many unpleasant ways. It can, there's so many unpleasant things that can come out. I mean, when, when things are in crisis, people freak out and do crazy things, right? Governments freak out and do crazy things, including ones we elect, <laughs> right? So I'm not comfortable with the idea that America is a burning house, although, yes, it is kind of hot these days, right? But I don't want to just fall into the assumption that it's falling apart. But at the same time, Obama has inherited the keys. But, you know, it's, it's, it's not just Obama, right? It's our house, right? 
And again, my orientation as a sort of immigrant is one that sees America as a place full of possibility, right? Because if you want to talk about burning houses, I could tell you about some countries I've been through, right? And some of the difficulties it took to get to this place, you know? Um, I think that there's so much need to remake America, but it's because America is a place that can be remade, right? My name is Christina. I just want to uh, reiterate some sentiments. Thank you very much for your time. It's been a great night. Um, there's still a few things I'm unclear about, so that's why I wanted to ask my question. Keeping in mind the title, The Future of MLK's Legacy, um, you've mentioned some terms like post-racial and transcending race, and um, you know, you've talked about Obama sort of running and a non-racial platform at all and reactions to that, and I'm just wondering, my impression is that you have painted this as somewhat dangerous, and I just want to know, do you honestly think it's possible, these things that you've been talking about? And if they're not, then what is our goal? What's if if post-racial and transcending race and running on a non-racial platform, are those things dangerous? Are they even possible? And if they're not, then what was our goal, or what it's, is our goal in the future? I don't know if those things are... That's not the danger. The The danger is um, pretending that race and racism ceases to exist and not addressing it. Um, that's the danger. I mean, you know, the ideal, and that's why I, I, don't, I don't like post-racial. I like post-racist. You know, in other words, racism is structural. It's institutional. It still exists, and we have evidence for it. Um, and it's not just anti-black. You know, it's not just anti-black racism that we're dealing with. I mean, we just dealt with post-9-11 uh, vicious racist war against South Asians, Arabs, and, and Muslims, and Christian Arabs, you know, I mean, who just look Arab and look dangerous. That's a racial uh, form of terror. And so, you know, what we need to do is basically reiterate a commitment to eliminating all forms of oppression. It's this simple. It's not, and that's beautiful. That's lovely. That is heartening. It transforms you. If we commit ourselves to that, and that's not limited to people of color, that's something that's open to every single human being. Every feeling, thinking person can do that. And, and to me, if anything, Obama's election should single a, a commitment to end racism rather than a commitment to forget it. You know, if that makes sense, you know. Um, so I don't think it's dangerous at all. I'm, I'm very hopeful and very optimistic about the future as long as we struggle, you know. <clears throat> and I would add that what should we be doing? What, for me, the beauty of this moment is in the broadening of the conception of who we are. Um, I can't suggest and won't suggest that we should all have a specific politics, whether radical, progressive, or conservative. That's not my interest, right? My interest is in getting more people to the con into the conversation. More people into the conversation, more perspectives into the conversation, and the conversation on all levels from this one down all the way up to the White House, right? Open up the conversation, and then we can talk about a we, right? So... That's my response. The, the we is not yet fulfilled. So to, to move from the we to what we should do is a big step there for me. 
Gentlemen, thank you so much. Let's give our panelists a hand.